You're listening to a podcast from Spencer Poetry and Performance, a collaboration between the International Spencer Society and Shakespeare's Globe. The conference took place at Shakespeare's Globe on the 12th and 13th of June, 2017. This podcast features a recording of Panel 3, Performing Materiality and the Non-Human. The discussants were Todd Borlick from the University of Huddersfield, Joseph Campana from Rice University, and Aisha Ramachandran from Yale University. The facilitator was Tiffany Jo Worth from Simon Fraser University. Um, so our session this afternoon um, is a little bit different in some ways from the kinds of questions that were being asked this morning about musicality, um, about sort of rhyme and line and, and lyric. And we're turning now to a question of how we can extend the notion of performance to entities within Spencer's poetry that are not persons. So entities, objects, forces that are not strictly human. There was recently, um, a year ago, a special issue of Spencer Studies, curated by Melissa Sanchez and one of our panelists, Aisha Ramachandran. And it took up this question of the great variety of non-human characters um, within Spencer's poetry. And as Aisha wrote in her introduction, fairies, automatons, satyrs, friendly lions, amorous rivers, and talking trees, and I'm going to add to that list an armed butterfly, um, are just a few of the actors that we encounter in his poetry. And so this discussion session today is really taking on and asking questions about what Julian Yates has called Spencer's infra-human performers. So um, as we did this morning, I'm going to forego the sort of usual academic introductions, but I would alert you to the fact that within your program, um, we do have um, sort of brief bios of all of the sort of performers for this sort of session. Um, and today, I will just sort of briefly introduce the, the human panelists, um, <laughs> Todd Borlick, Aisha Ramachandran, um, and Joe Campana, and as you already read this morning, our actors, Matthew and, and Frank, and I'm Tiffany Wolf. I want to just sort of begin today with a few more um, sort of prompts for the kinds of research questions um, that the panelists are going to explore in more detail. And I thought I would begin sort of illustrating this with a brief sort of listen into a moment from one of Spencer's shorter poems, Muyopotmos. And for those of you that are unfamiliar with this tale, it's a wonderful little sort of fable about a crafty spider who entraps a beautiful butterfly named Clarion. And an assertive narrator opens the poem with dignity, and he proposes a tale of epic proportions, a tale suffused with tragedy. And it begins with the arming of our hero. So we're going to listen to the opening arming moment. So on a summer's day, when season mild, with gentle calm the world had quieted, and high in heaven Hyperion's fiery child, ascending, did his beams abroad dispread, Whilst all the heavens on lower creatures smiled, young Clarion, with vaunted lusty head, after his guise did cast abroad to fare, and thereto gan his furnitures prepare. His breastplate first, that was of substance pure, before his noble heart he firmly bound, that mort his life from iron death assure, and ward his gentle corpse from cruel wound. For it by art was framed to endure the bit of baleful steel and bitter stound, no less than that which Vulcan made to shield Achilles' life 
from fate of Trojan field. So, from a performance perspective, the interest of this passage, I think, hinges on the narrator's voice slowly fading as young Clarion begins his furnitures to prepare. He binds his breastplate, he shields his gentle corpse, a couple of stanzas later, he throws on a hairy hide, like to that of a lion's skin. And so successive stanzas delineate each act of arming. So from breastplate, to hairy hide, to a glistering helmet, to deadly weapons, and finally... Lastly, his shiny wings are silver bright, painted with thousand colours, passing far all painter's skill he did about him dight. Not half so many sundry colours are in iris bow, nay heaven doth shine so bright, distinguished with many a twinkling star, nor Juno's bird in her eye-spotted train so many goodly colours doth contain. Nay, may it be without in peril spoken, the archer-god, the son of Scythery, that joys on wretched lovers to be broken, and heaped spoils of bleeding hearts to see, bears in his wings so many a changeful token, Ah, my liege lord, forgive it unto me, if aught against thine honour I have told. Yet sure, those wings were fairer manifold. So Clarion's sort of performance, and I'm hoping that sort of with Matthew's beautiful reading, you can sort of imagine this butterfly um, arming himself um, for battle, is interrupted by that sort of moment where, ah, my liege lord, forgive me. Forgive me for comparing an entomological sort of warrior <laughs> to Cupid. <laughs> And even more so, perhaps, to those famous sort of warriors of old, the classical full-sized human heroes, Achilles. So, and yet, that extended description, the sort of poetic ekphrasis um, of those passages, brings Clarion into vivid life. We see a warrior preparing for battle. But, of course, the passage literally describes the anatomy of a butterfly. So, how does life come to be sort of formed in the progression of stanzas? The subject of the narrator's descriptions takes on its own wings before us. It is what some contemporary theorists might call an immediacy of sympathetic becoming. The life activity, the performance, we might say, of a butterfly about to take flight creatively, completely sort of distinguishes distinctions between gods, warriors, and something as seemingly non-human as a butterfly. So how does Spencer's verse create relationally more than human characters whose performance is passing far from skill? And how is such sympathetic becoming controlled? What might a landscape look like where humans have turned butterfly or where landscape washes away all human trace? How do questions of performance redistribute our notions of agents and of actors? And finally, to paraphrase one of our speakers today, Joseph Campana, what is the relationship between literary figuration, that is poetic art, and a vitally material realm of living that extends beyond the centered human self? Where does the human end? The material thing begin? What is the poem? What is the performance? And what is us? And with that, I turn to the top one. Thank you, Tiffany, uh, both for that. Wonderful talk and for the invitation to speak today. So, uh, so like many of you, no doubt, I had difficulty settling on just a single passage to talk about today. Pericles, um, of course, the proverbial embarrassment of riches. Uh, but the first one that I couldn't resist sharing or uh, revisiting with you is uh, the description of Sir Saturn uh, in Book One uh, and his 
account of his taming of the wild beasts of the forest. Uh, reading this and teaching this, it always for me activates memories of Elizabethan animal blood sport. Uh, it's, it's impossible not to, to read it uh, in these ways, I think. And there are three conspicuous epic similes in which Spencer uh, draws comparisons between characters uh, and baited animals. If you tally them, all three of them strikingly, uh, show that his sympathy is on the side of the baited animal, of the baited creature. Uh, twice it's applied to King Arthur. Uh, one, uh, one of them is in the, the battle, I think, uh, outside the, the castle of Alma. Uh, and later with uh, the squire, Timius, uh, in uh, Book 6. So, for me, this is, this is a very striking moment uh, in Book 1. It's the first appearance of the animal baiting a trope in the poem, but I think it's slightly different than the other three. What makes this one distinctive is that what we see here, not so much is, is the performing animal, as we, as we see in the epic similes um, with Arthur and Timaeus. What we hear in this particular passage is not animal performance, but a performance of human mastery over the animal. So let's, let's listen for that uh, in this, this first recitation. For all he taught the tender imp was but to banish cowardice and bastard fear. His trembling hand he would him force to put upon the lion and the rugged bear, and from the she-bear's teats her whelps to tear, and eke wild roaring bulls he would him make to tame, and ride their backs not made to bear. And the roebucks in flight to overtake, that every beast for fear of him did fly and quake. And for to make his power approved more, wild beasts in iron yokes he would compel. The spotted panther and the tusked boar, the pardle swift and the tiger cruel, the antelope and wolf both fierce and fell, and them constrain in equal team to draw. Such joy he had their stubborn hearts to quell, and sturdy courage tame with dreadful awe, that his behest they feared as tyrant's law. All right, so now we're going to make a pivot to our next pivot reading. Uh, this is one that Tiffany proposed initially when she was putting together the panel, uh, and it's a description of Sir Guyon's crossing the ocean. I was very happy that she uh, picked this one because it's one that I've actually put in a new anthology I've been working on the past five years of uh, Renaissance environmental writing. And... Uh, Reading it, it seems obviously very literary and allegorical, and Spencer's scholars have dutifully chronicled all of his debts to classical epic, uh, to, to Homer, uh, to Virgil, and to, to Tasso uh, in the Renaissance. But I think it would be well, moronic to deny that this is a very allegorical literary section of the, of the Fairy Queen. It would be equally pig-headed to ignore the fact that Spencer did in fact set foot on a ship. Uh, that we, he, unlike, uh, we can say this with confidence, as we cannot with Shakespeare, that he did travel across the ocean, making no fewer than three, possibly four, crossings of the Irish Sea. Readers of the Fairy Queen would have recognized some of the topography and also the fauna described in the poem. And stanzas seven and eight of Canto 12, Guyon sails past the rock of vile reproach, a dangerous and detestable place to which nor fish nor fowl did once approach, but yelling mews with seagulls hoarse and base, and cormorants with birds of ravenous race. I think that there's a, 
some very likely topographical references going on in this portion of the Fairy Queen. In Colin Cowell Comes Home Again, Spencer talks about sailing past the Isle of Lundy, which is sometimes described as Britain's Galapagos. Uh, but we know in 1580, when he sailed with Lord Grey's retinue, they would have left from Beaumarais on the Isle of Anglesey. Now, they would have gone immediately past uh, an island then known as Priestholm, today known as Puffin Island. But because Spencer says that it took two days to reach this isle, I think it is far more likely, and I'm fairly confident, that this is in fact a description of what is known as Ireland's Eye, an island that is just right off the coast of Howth Harbor. And its most conspicuous feature is a ginormous freestanding rock, which is coated with literally thousands of seabirds. So I wanted to mention this passage because I think it's important that it sets up what happens in the pivot reading here when uh, Guyon encounters the sea beasts. If we look at this passage through a post-colonial prism, you can see that the savagery of the sea prefigures the savagery of Ireland. All right. And that Spencer has a tendency to perceive the sea in terms of the land, to think that there's an analogical resemblance between the creatures of the sea and of the earth. But that, that breaks down, strikingly, uh, in this portion of the fairy queen. At least it seems to. Um, Dame nature flees in horror from the hideousness of the sea creatures. And this conflates uh, the inhuman with the unnatural. The poem, though, um, invites us to scrape back the, fant the fantastical veneer uh, in, which, in which the, these three stanzas that we'll hear from the actor in a moment uh, seem to address the sea creatures. In stanza 26, this is immediately after the reading, the poem tells Guy to fear not, for these same monsters are not these indeed, but these are fearful shapes disguised. So in retrospect, Spencer is dropping hints that the, the Vossermen um, and the sea satyrs are in fact merely dolphin and a seal. Uh, and there's an incidentally a large population of seal, called sea colony, lo uh, located right on the uh, Ireland's Eye Island. So in other words, Guyan's dread at the spectacle of the sea in this passage um, is an incorrect response to the oceanic ecology. Dame nature is frightened because these are not actually marine fauna that, that are being described, but chimeras, distorted interests figured by human fear, an anthropocentric fear, and by also the poetic imagination. The ecological consequences of this, of this sort of dread, I think, uh, could be severe. Uh, the poem simply scatters the sea creatures with his staff, um, but most early moderns, when they encountered strange wildlife, the reaction was to kill it, uh, as a group of fishermen did in 1578 when they slaughtered 17 orcas in the River Orwell. I want to end, though, with the thought that the poem's rebuke of this poetic exaggeration um, is not the end of the story, because allegory and myth are not always inimical to an ecological vision, uh, to, to perceiving the agency of the inhuman. The fairy queen also captures the agency of the sea in the figure of Neptune and the personifications of the waves, the currents, and the storms at sea. Um, Spencer often represents a sense of human vulnerability, of human impotence and thrall to the titanic power of oceanic forces. The floating islands that Guyon encounters can represent, well, the unreliability of uh, Renaissance cartography, uh, but also they can describe, uh, they seem to describe at times the bogs where the English soldiers fear to tread. Um, the Fairy Queen achieves a complex interplay of the literal and allegorical, and it's always been a commonplace of Spencerian criticism. But if we read that commonplace from an eco-materialist point of view, that has very salutary implications, I think. Um, the natural world is granted both an honorary subjectivity, uh, but also has a stubborn alterity. 
And in the alteration between the literal and the allegorical, between the literary and the performative, uh, what we have is an, an anthropom anthropomorphic impulse that's kept in check by a recognition of the otherness of the inhuman. All right, let's uh, hear the passage. Please. The waves come rolling and the billows roar outrageously as they, en as they enraged were. Or wrathful Neptune then drive before his whirling chariot for exceeding fear. For not one puff of wind there did appear, that all the three thereat what's much afraid, unweeting what such horror strange did rear. Eftsoons they saw a hideous host arrayed of huge sea monsters such as living sense dismayed. Most ugly shapes and horrible aspects, such as Dame Nature self most fear to see, or shame that ever should so foul defects from her most cunning hand escaped be, all dreadful portraits of deformity. Spring-headed hydras and sea-shouldering whales, great whirlpools which all fishes make to flee, Bright scolopendres armed with silver scales, mighty monoceruses with immeasured tails. All these, and thousands, thousands, many more, and more deformed monsters, thousandfold, with dreadful noise and hollow rumbling roar, came rushing in the foamy whale, waves and rolled, which seemed to fly for fear them to behold. No wonder if these did the night appall. For all that here on earth we dreadful hold, be but as bugs to fear and babes withal, compared to the creatures in the seas and thrall. I feel like I just want to clap <laughs> for that reading. Um, so I, I want to just frame a little bit this discussion going back to Tiffany's opening points, because there's a way in which the contrast between poetry and performance speaks to the difficulty, in some ways, of speaking to the question of the human and the non-human. So it's a commonplace, of course, in performance studies to talk about how performance is fundamentally about embodiment, that performance calls to life in a very physical, material, tangible way the fact of the actor's body, which is itself gives form to the sort of immateriality of the, uh, of the script, of the text. Um, and there's a way in which poetry is fundamentally the opposite of that, that it is fundamentally intangible, immaterial, abstractive in a certain way, um, and metaphoric, where it is seeking to transcend in some way what is powerfully physical. Um, and much of the kind of thinking, I think, around environmental questions, around questions about materiality and the non-human, also struggle with this question of how do we get away from the human body when we are powerfully always situated within it as actors who are thinking about uh, the human and the non-human, or we even talk about the idea of subjectivity. Um, so, one of the things I thought would be interesting to think about in getting at these two questions, human, non-human, poetry, performance, is to think a little bit about how a poet like Spencer thinks, thinks performatively about non-human sources. Um, and so I wanted, the two uh, passages that I thought we might hear and think about are both hymnic passages. Uh, and partly I turn to the form of the hymn here because the hymn is fundamentally performative in its ancient forms. It wants to call up um, that which is not human, often divine forces, natural forces. Uh, its goal here, in some ways, as invocation, 
is to not quite give life, but to animate in this way that hovers between what is not quite human and embodied, um, but what wants to give that kind of voice and form and action to something which is not human. Um, so how do we think about non-human forces as agents and actors in a kind of cosmic cycle? And you sort of see where I'm going here, where in some ways the act of the hymn, which is to call up a natural force, a god, a daimon of some kind, is to also recognize the action of those non-human forces in human life, right? It's a human being calling it up to kind of think about its relationship to the human body. So uh, this also this suggests Spencer's very deep commitment, I think, that we heard in the wonderful Sea Monster passage to how connected we are to these broader cosmic cycles, but how fundamentally insignificant we can also be within those cycles. I love that thousands and thousands in the Monsters passage where suddenly that sort of rapid shift of perspective suggests the smallness of the human body against the immensity of all that is not human. And similarly, I think, instead of hymnic texts, um, there is a way in which the forces that are being conjured by the act of poetry being performed aloud force us to think about human individuals and human bodies are ultimately both powerfully big in the act of being able to call them out, but also very small in that they are subject to them. Um, so the two examples I would like us to hear are first one, and I'll talk a little bit about that, and then the other. Um, the first is the famous uh, Hymn to Venus from Book 4 of the Fairy Queen, which is Spencer's translation, of course, of the invocation of Lucretius's De Rerum Natura. Um, and what I love about this text is not just that it makes us think here about the movement from classical verse, I mean, really, I mean, a striking classical verse, because Lucretius sets what is really a hymnic text as the, at the opening in hexameter of an epic, but to render that into the form of the Spencerian stanza, which is itself a kind of very interesting act of both performance and poetry in the sort of um, mastery of the verse form itself, but also helps us to think about how these forces then are anthropomorphized. So we'll hear, we'll hear the hymn to Venus, um, a goddess, but one who also represents for Lucretius the idea of matter in motion itself. And I'll say more, more about that in a moment. So could we hear that? Yeah. Great Venus, queen of beauty and of grace, the joy of gods and men that under sky dost fairest shine and most adorn thy place, that with thy smiling look dost pacify the raging seas and makes the storms to fly. Thee, goddess, thee, the winds, the clouds do fear, and when thou spreadst thy mantle forth on high, the waters play and pleasant lands appear, and heavens laugh and all the world shows joyous cheer. Then do the savage beasts begin to play their pleasant frisks and loathe their wonted food, the lions roar, the tigers loudly bray, the raging bulls rebellow through the wood, and breaking forth dare tempt the deepest flood to come where thou dost draw them with desire. So all things else that nourish vital blood, soon as with fury thou dost them inspire, in generation seek to quench their inward fire. So all the world by thee at first was made, and daily yet thou dost the same repair. Nay, aught on earth that merry is and glad, nay, aught on earth that lovely is and fair, but thou the same for pleasure didst prepare. Thou art the root of all that joyous is, great God of men and women, queen of the air, mother of laughter and wellspring of bliss. O grant that of my love at last I may not miss. I hope you know 
noticed here the movement from a kind of individual calling up of the goddess herself, seen as a kind of beautiful beloved, to that passage of the animals that populate the world, to a kind of celebration of the world itself. And you can hear in the movement of the poetry a kind of intellectual abstracting movement from the particular out to the general, but you can also hear how the verse form there contains this kind of intellectual shift that marks the movement of each stanza. Uh, and part of what I think is really striking about hearing this, as opposed to simply reading it, um, is that you hear the, the sense of bigness in the scope of the passage and the human voice that is calling it, that is in some ways subject to it as well. And there is a kind of tension there that I think Spencer is intellectually interested as well that comes out in the space between an active performance as a calling up uh, and the poetic imagination that wants to get beyond the individual body of that actor who is calling up. Um, uh, just a couple of quick thoughts on this. I mean, obviously at some level this is an anthropomorphic passage. Uh, it's an invocation of Venus, a particular goddess, one associated here with sexual desire and generation as the glue of the world. But anyone reading this passage or coming to it, uh, or I should say many people in this period, would have recognized it to also be uh, powerfully heterodox. Uh, this is a celebration of the opening of a poem about materialism and atomism. Uh, it's a poem that celebrates matter in motion, fundamentally. Uh, it is an atheistic poem um, in, in certain pretty fundamental ways. Uh, and it's an elemental poem. And I think part of what's so interesting here about the poetry is the way in which it's interested in the moving energy of the elements themselves. And you can hear that again in this kind of the movement from the individual figure to the multiplicity of the animals to the quenching of the fire and to that kind of wonderful last passage where she is the goddess of laughter and good cheer. Um, and there's a sense in which, again, you can see the movement of the play there between embodiment, the physical animals, and these sort of immaterial uh, forms. Um, Finally, the idea of the principle of generation itself, which is celebrated here in the hymn, is also, I think, about poetic generation, where the act of translation here gives rise to a new kind of poetry, but the act of re-performing it over and over again reinforces a certain set of ideas. So there's a kind of connection there. Um, something similar but also quite different is happening, for instance, in the hymn uh, In Honor of Beauty, which is the other passage that we will hear in a moment, where um, the difference between celebrating an abstract idea like beauty versus celebrating or calling forth a goddess like Venus um, produces a very different kind of poetic effect. And would you read that, Mr. Sanz? Yes. Thank you. Wrapped with the rage of mine own ravished thought, through contemplation of those goodly sights and glorious images in heaven wrought, whose wondrous beauty breathing sweet delights do kindle love in high conceited sprites, I feign to tell the things that I behold, but feel my wits to fail and tongue to fold. Beginning then below with the easy view of this base world subject to fleshly eye, from thence to mount aloft by order due to contemplation of the immortal sky, of the sore falcon, so I learn to fly, that flags awhile her fluttering wings beneath, till she herself for stronger flight can breathe. Thank you. Uh, I'm missing a stanza there that actually echoes the opening uh, invocation to Venus that you just heard as well. Um, notice the difference between these two passages. They're both hymnic, uh, but one evokes and invokes the goddess. The other is also a reflection on its own act of invoking. Right, it thinks here about being ravished by the thought by which the poet wants us to be ravished too. 
Um, there's a kind of calling up here, which is also sort of self-reflective in a quite different way that draws attention back here, I think, powerfully to the human agent doing the thinking, even though the thing being thought about is abstract. It's beauty, it's the thinking about beauty, which is quite different from what's going on in that earlier passage, even though poetically these two passages actually mirror each other uh, in really interesting ways. Uh, a couple of final thoughts before I pass it over to, to Joe. Um, both these, I think it's important to go back to a point that was made in the earlier session um, by David Mueller about the relationship between lyric and narrative as we think about poetry and performance. So the uh, hymn to Venus that uh, Matthew first read, of course, comes from Book Four of the Fairy Queen. It is sung by one of the lovers of the Temple of Venus. It's embedded in a narrative framework, where to go back to Fran's point about telling a story, uh, it's very important to the stories that are told in book four. It's very important to what happens to Scudamore and Amaret uh, in the Temple of Venus. Uh, the hymn, In Honor of Beauty, is of course a lyric text. Uh, it advertises itself as a standalone hymn without a backstory in the way that the earlier hymn has. And so the question there, I think, that's worth pondering is, how, do you, how different these two passages sound when they're read? And I'd be curious to hear how you felt reading them and the kind of intricacy of the words, which is quite, works quite differently, I think. Um, and, but I think there, the difference between what happens when you embed a poetic moment that is performed literally within the text, because it's sung in, within the con narrative context of the Fairy Queen, versus a lyric which imagines itself generically to be something performed or sung. Uh, and that those two kinds of things are not the same, and they sound different when they're read aloud and performed aloud. So I think that we do need to pay more attention to the question of genre when we think about poetry as performed or in a performative context um, in ways that are not quite the same as when we talk about drama. Um, and, and the final point I want to make here is, I think we often forget that the power of poetry is about a kind of calling to mind uh, or a calling up, which is fundamentally performative. That there is a kind of imaginative opening that is offered in the act of reading, where even if we're not necessarily thinking about embodiment in the sense of an actor's body as we watch a play on a stage, there's another kind of imaginative embodiment that comes to mind that uh, is really quite crucial when we talk, uh, talk about hearing poetry as opposed to simply reading it on the page. So I'll stop there. I'll uh, spend a little time by just saying thank you to everyone who made this possible. If I had to list everyone who put in so much time, um, so much work into this, I wouldn't have time to do my paper. Um, I'm going to talk about um, what I think of as being overlapping territories, poetry and performance. I'm more interested in the idea that these are sort of shared, unevenly overlapping terrains, rather than places in which a certain set of capacities only exist, say, in drama, but then are barred by poetry or vice versa. Um, in a sense, whether we're talking about a poem, a script, or a score, since we're talking about music in the previous session, these are all instructions towards realization, and there are different kinds of realization. Um, the particular quality I'm interested in, which I think happens in performance and in poetry um, and in song, is an interrupting voice. Um, and the non-human uh, that I'm going to be thinking about is not a creature or an object or a thing or a substance, um, not a non-human so much as no human. I'm interested in thinking about. I'm going to think about that in Am Ready 75, which I'll read and then um, very happily Matthew will read at the end. Okay. Poems are engines of eternity, or so we've tended to think. We who, like Spencer and Shakespeare, write 
in the wake of Horace, whose famous ode on the subject of poetic immortality insists the poet has created, this is a quote, a monument more lasting than bronze and loftier than the pyramids, very familiar um, phrases, um, one that's resistant to devouring rain, raging winds, or the innumerable succession of years. Non omnis moriar, the poet says, I will not wholly die. We may not last, but our poems will, or so poets tend to hope. Um, the idea perhaps now most familiar to us um, because of the wide circulation of Shakespeare's sonnets was of course by no means his invention. And before Shakespeare helped codify that gesture, this now venerable gambit of eternity literally runs aground in Edmund Spencer's Amoretti 75. One day I wrote her name upon the strand, but came the waves and washed it away. Again, I wrote it with a second hand, but came the time and made my pains his prey. Vain man, said she, that dost in vain essay a mortal thing so to immortalize, for I myself shall like to this decay and ache my name be wiped out likewise. Not so, quod I, let baser things devise to die in dust, but you shall live by fame. My verse, your virtues rare, shall eternize and in the heavens write your glorious name, where, when as death shall all the world subdue, our love shall live and later life renew. How triumphant and familiar that ending is. Our love shall live and later life renew. The consonants of those L's thread a line from now to forever, but can make us forget the thread that opens the poem. One day I wrote her name upon the strand, but came the waves washed it away. Again I wrote it with a second hand, but came the tide and made my pains his prey. Faced with the power of the sea to erase the trace of human effort and will, twice the poet fails. But in his mind, if nowhere else, the third time is the charm, or so that closing of the poem suggests. But is it really the promised end? What's always seemed to me so special about Amoretti 75, I know I'm not the only one, um, it's sort of deservedly perhaps the most circulated of Spencer's Amoretti, um, is the eruption of a second voice at the heart of the sonnet. Vain man, said she, that dost in vain essay a mortal thing so to immortalize, for I myself shall like to this decay, and ache my name be wiped out likewise. The introduction of voice adds a certain kind of quality we might call performative, sure, and in so doing it lends a power of a voice to the power of decay. The speaker tries his best to mansplain it all away. <laughs> um, in the same way that Horace insists that he shall not wholly die, at least he hopes. Um, the lover of Amorites insists his beloved's name, their love shall never die. Um, I myself shall like to this decay and ache my name be wipe it out likewise. The beloved sees through the game, the whole gambit of eternity. Singular as Amoretti 75 is, the gesture to erase is not wholly unique here. Um, in Shakespeare's sonnets, which also, of course, pursue that Horatian gambit, um, not only considering um, the tenuous persistence of marble and gilded monuments, brass and stone, but also witnessing the erasure of the sea. Like as the waves make to the pebbled shore, so do our minutes hasten to their end. 
Spencer himself debates the import of the way the sea with waves continual does eat the earth. I was really pleased to hear that passage earlier today, um, read I think in the first session, um, from the legend of justice in articles encountered with the giant of equality. Um, certainly there were contexts in Spencer and Shakespeare's England to interpret gestures of erasure, persistent reminders of death, entire culture of that, um, the looming possibility, perhaps hope of, apocalypse, um, right, fantasies of the second judgment, of um, second coming and final judgment. Um, so I think, of course, we can read these poems in a way that makes sense with how we've tended to talk about the ruination of time. But I think now we hear something smacking not so much of eternity, but perhaps about of extinction, as we contemplate the tenuous futures of our planet. Um, and so I want to close with just three distillations and a question. Lyrics, as I've tried to suggest, are not merely engines of eternity harnessing poetry for preservation. Um, second point, lyrics, which we tend to think of, erroneously so perhaps sometimes, as expressions of a singular self and voice, exclaiming in the intensity of a frozen now, extending into eternity, might imagine a future. Um, and the interruption of this other voice is central to that kind of imagination in M. Ready 75. But that lyric future just might describe what um, Alan Wiseman calls um, a world without us. It might, with Roy Scranton, who wrote recently, offer lessons in learning to die in the Anthropocene. Spencer's Emory 75 indicates that centuries of sonnets seemingly dedicated to the gambit of eternity just might be engines of erasure and witnesses of extinction. And that is to say, um, Spencer's beloved um, might not just be the sort of voice of a liquid prisoner, prisoner pent in a world of glass, a voice of the past, but a voice echoing from a future time without us, a voice not ventriloquizing a kind of non-human other world that we might want to listen to and think about, but a world without us. So finally, if there is a finally in Spencer's lyric world, um, a question that haunts perhaps the self-insportant species with its exquisite or sometimes self-absorbed sonnets, what do we see when we look at the world and we do not see ourselves? Thanks. One day, I wrote her name upon the strand, but came the waves and washed it away. Again, I wrote it with a second hand, but came the tide and made my pains his prey. Vain man, said she, that dost in vain assay a mortal thing so to immortalize, for I myself shall like to this decay, and let my name be wiped out likewise. Not so, quod I, let baser things devise, to die in dust, but you shall live by fame. My verse your virtues rare shall eternize, and in the heavens write your glorious name. Where when as death shall let the world subdue, our love shall live, and later life renew. Again, um, with asking our panelists to um, speak a little bit perhaps to, to one another before we open it up to general questions. And I thought I might just sort of ask you guys perhaps to begin with um, a question that came to my mind um, in sort of listening to the various passages you were reading um, and the various sort of different ways that you were talking about non-human, no-human, erasure of human. Um, and I wondered how much Aisha's formulation of matter in motion um, may or may not work with our ideas of performance. In other words, does performance assume a kind of personation, a kind of audience, um, and is there, 
anything to be sort of teased out between perhaps thinking about those those different kinds of movement? Wow, that's a hard question. <laughs> I guess maybe I'll just throw out that it makes me think a lot of what Joe was trying to get at, which is precisely the, the space of performance assumes a performer and an audience of some kind. And I think Joe is asking us to think about what happens if we don't imagine that, you know, which is to say there is no human performer, there is no human audience, is there still a performance of some kind, right? Um, and I'm very struck by that because I think what it called out to me is how difficult or even impossible it is to think that thought uh, or to imagine that thought. Um, and how, in a sense, we are even in imagining embodying in some way, uh, which makes it hard to think about, well, what would it mean to imagine kind of moments post-erasure? And are we still talking about things like materiality and poetry performance in that moment? Or does that moment actually erase the entire force of these aesthetic productions, right? I mean, is there a kind of darker aspect to what you're getting at, which is that there is no meaning and no matter, not just in the sense of materiality, but sense and sensibility, if we think outside the question of human agency. And I'll also just say that, you know, when you proposed the topic of this panel, my first thought was, we're going to talk about the non-human in a conference about performance and poetry, which is fundamentally about the human. Like, how is that really going to even work, right? Uh, and I say that having, you know, as you said, I mean, I'm interested in that question intellectually. Um, so I do think that you know this this question that you just raised offers lots of different ways in thinking about to what extent the act of performance matters and that the space of performance matters. Um, well, I, I don't know what else to add to follow up on that. I think I mean, I just summarized it quite well. A performance without an audience is sort of an oxymoron, isn't it? It's a paradox. Um, but of course, there's also an anthropocentric element to that as well, that we assume that uh, other species aren't capable of any sort of meditative or contemplative response to to other actions, even you know, uh, by other by other organisms. But it's, I think we just have to reframe what we what we mean by performance, and maybe matter and motion is one way to do that. Mm. I was thinking about the sort of you know, the thousands upon thousands, right? Sort of in the reading of the of the passage, and certainly there's a kind of a roiling sort of activity that's happening there. Yeah, I mean, at the bottom of the ocean is sort of this this theater that's an inaccessible theater, isn't it? And that what that passage drives home is the epistemological limitations of the human, their inability to penetrate below the ocean surface. Uh, so there's just this teeming abundance of sea life that, that totally um, exceeds our ability to, to document, to, uh, to understand it. Um, we're still, and to this day, even with all our advanced submarine equipment. But absolutely, we are imagining it. I mean, I just want to, don't want to minimize that. I mean, I think that it's true that there are limitations of documenting and a kind of empirical enumeration. But I think what that passage also brings to life is this the astonishing possibility of imagining it, right? If you if you can imagine it exists, it might mean that you'll go look for it one day and begin to document it. I mean, I think there's a continuum there and not a kind of breakdown that I think is important. Um, um, let me just ask Joe one quick question before we... Did you want to respond to that, Joe? No. I, I was just wondering if there is also, if, if you might want to think a little bit about um, a correlation between ravishment and extinction. Mm -hmm. Sorry, ravishment? Ravishment yeah. and ravishment. extinction. Thought. What I was thinking about was the a part of what came out, I think, in the sort of readings of, of, of the Amoretti is the sort of absolute kind of 
you know, ravishment both for the beloved, but also for the sort of sense of, of, of being extinguished, right? I mean, of being sort of wiped away, sort of being washed away, not only perhaps by the sea, but also in um, in another individual. So that's sure, sure. that's where I was going with that. Well, so with respect to that, that's a sort of big topic for the whole sequence, but with respect to that particular poem, the question is how we, and it relates to some of the things we've been talking about, what do we do with that particular voice, right? It's one of the few sonnets in which a beloved talks back, right? But then you also end up wondering in this, you know, in these sequences, um, it really is the sort of the sort of sonneteer, puppeteer, sort of, um, you know, manipulating voices in a certain way. So what is it? What what's the trace of that voice? What exactly is it supposed to say to us? Other than it seems to be talking about its own extinguishing sort of extinguishment. And what's the role of um, of of the woman being the sort of person, being that sort of figure? To, to enunciate that. So I'm not sure if I, I, I can say anything about rationalism in this one, but I think all those raise some very kind of complicated questions about what it is to imagine sort of the voice of another, right? Which is the fundamental problem we have talking about um, anything that isn't human as well. And if the sort of some of the primary features of poetry and performance focalized through voice and persona and character and human-like figures, right, the whole which is a huge problem, the problem of personation. Um, how, how, where, where do those sorts of devices break down um, in interesting ways? And what do we do at that point when we're representing, I think coming back to sort of some of the, um, whether it's matter in motion or this like shockingly multitudinous life. Like how are you supposed to grapple with what seem like the traditional tools of poetry performance with that kind of multiplicity? Um, and it's sort of interestingly um, kind of genre of brand new bending and breaking task. And but those moments of pressure seem very interesting. And I think again the question of what we do with this being the one moment it seems the woman gets to speak and that that's what she says, I erase myself, which seems salutary in a certain way with respect to a kind of um, uh, with respect to trying to imagine the world without us, and yet is also the only moment that the woman speaks. And she's erasing herself, right? That tension doesn't go away. It's posthumanist, but not feminist. Sure. <laughs> can I can I just ask um, the actors for just a moment to sort of reflect on? Do you find any difference in sort of trying to find a voice or for or a character for um, some things that aren't actually strictly human when you're when you're reading Invocation to Venus or um, of Clarion sort of being armed? I mean, do you imagine? Mm. It's interesting because in, in these particular examples, you're not speaking as those characters, you're speaking about them. And certainly in theatre, when you're, when you're asked to sort of try and invoke a, a deity of some kind, you, I've always been taught that, you, that certainly because of the time that the piece was written, you're not vaguely discussing this character. It, they're, a per, they're a person that is definitely there, and you have total belief and faith that, that if you... If you treat them with enough respect, and uh, that they will come down and they'll help you. Mm -hmm. If you speak to them in the right way and use the right combination of words, as they sometimes do. And frequently you, we do play those characters. And and then when we do, they certainly in the in the sort of Red Not Dead projects that we do, where they tend to be in a script in hand, the six hours of rehearsal, they tend to be um, quite grand. Uh, what would you say? Broad, slightly broad. Um, or the characters themselves, the, yeah, the deities. The god characters. Yeah, well, it depends who's written though. Sometimes they're quite squabbly. <laughs> they're quite petty, really, aren't they? Yeah. They're treated very much as, as I think they're, they're often treated very much as humans, aren't they? I mean, they're, they're, they've got all their, their traits and their foibles. And, um, and, and I think, 
you know, they're, they're brought down to stand next to humans and, and they inevitably behave worse yeah. <laughs> um, and in a more petty manner, quite childlike, really, I suppose. I suppose it's interesting to, uh, being, a, being a character, as you were saying, when, when somebody speaks, because I think that's a performance that we do all the time. I have continual arguments with, my, with people who, are, who I know. So the idea of the woman speaking, but she's not speaking, she's being... She's being it, it's he's speaking <laughs> for her. Uh, I, I love the idea of kind of putting that that performance, which we all do all the time, and, and we're not a performer, we're not an actor, but we are creating characters which we know. We're manipulating them in our minds, mm-hmm. which is an you know, it, does she say what he wants her to say? <laughs> right, is it really a conversation? It just feels like it's this. It feels like it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. One thing I, I was thinking about as well. Sorry, it's just occurred to me as we're talking about this. Is that in in classical theatre and in poetry, you tend to find that gods are exactly what you expect them to be. In a sense, they they live up to the image that people have of them. Whereas you compare it to something modern like Angels in America, where the angels turn out to be quite disappointing. (laughs) In in the sense that they're powerless and they've got this sense of despair that you that if everybody knew about, God knows what would happen. and in that sense, you, you have a, there's a hope to what you read mm. in classical texts where people actively want to meet their gods because they know they have a conviction that their life would be better with that connection. What's interesting too, this, this sort of thing has gone in this direction of thinking about what, again, I think a shared territory poetry and performance, which is a ritualistic aspect, which is the idea, and this is how lyric has been described for a very long time, right? The idea that um, certain words either can call to particular figures or call down consequences. There's something ritualistic about both that maybe also suspends this sort of purely characterological, um, you know, I know that this is this kind of person that this in this setting with these stage directions, but it, but it sort of is a, still a shared territory, the idea of calling to someone, something to some principle, or calling down consequences, and that seems very interesting as well. I saw a bunch of hands flashing up. Um, Suzanne? Well, I had a couple of different things. I first wanted to say, just in terms of the comment about um, the sonnet, that it seems to me the woman in 75 could also be seen as rather like Rosalind debunking Orlando's love um, excesses, um, stereotypes. Um, But what I really wanted to say, I had two comments that are not connected. The first one has to do with oceans. And oceans are just such an important, wonderful part of the poem, and I love the passages. But I guess I, I do feel that you cannot ignore the power, the imaginative power of classical mythology in thinking about it. So so the environment is this living environment, partly because there are these living spirits in it. So Neptune lifts up his back and looks shocked to see Simoen riding on her chariot with the the seals or dolphins, I guess they are. Um, I feel like there's something, it's not anti-material to think about the ways in which people have tried to imagine this unimagined, uh, unimaginable world of multiplicity. and So I just wanted to raise that because I feel as though it, it somehow misses, it's how we know how powerful the ocean is in some ways. Um, so uh, anyway, the, the other comment I had, which, which I think is, is, might be a helpful one, is that um, so in the hymn, in, in book four, in the Temple of Venus, the um, lover's hymn, 
is directed towards uh, the statue of Venus, right? So certainly a ritual context. Um, and it, in um, uh, Scudamore comes and also worships at this statue and thinks he sees it move. And I guess I do feel that there's this performative world of statues on stage. I can think of, you know, one that moves very famously. But I just saw the Canadian National Ballet production of The Winter's Tale about two summers ago. Incredible use of statues with the dancing bodies of the actors with no words. Um, and one statue had um, Polina with a mamilius. And then when the ending came, Polina stepped out of the statue, but Mamilius was still there as the statue. And the ballet ended with um, the, not Polina, um, sorry. Um, Hermione. Hermione, yes. Um, it's that the ballet ended with Polina bowing down to the statue of Mamilius. So there's a lot of performativity in a rock or a statue in, in the space of performance. And we have examples, and you were just talking about the performance of gods on stage. So, so these things are performable. They're not necessarily... Um, anyway, that, I just wanted to throw out that question of the, the difference between the hymn to Venus in the poem and the, the hymnic's sort of ritual lyric version, because the Spencerian example really is interested in this question of the embodiment of that goddess in something static, but then how it moves under certain circumstances. So, I had, in a sense, a very um, boring, absolutely interesting to give a, a rather everyday or mundane spin to some of the questions that, that Aisha was raising about size, which I think is a really interesting, always really interesting topic in relation to, to Spencer. But it just came out in a new way, in your remarks, the way that might be a way of thinking about a person's performance. Uh, I mean, obviously, I don't think you can write a poem that long and not be thinking about aesthetic size um, okay. in some way, but also, um, in a sense, fairies themselves, right? So, are partly interesting because they are so um, flexible or indeterminate in terms of their size. And that then becomes an interesting performance question in relation to Miss Night's Dream, where you have these, yeah. these figures who are, in a sense, um, uh, sort of embodiments of indeterminate size. Then have to be embodied by human actors who presumably can't change shape unless you guys have. <laughs> I mean, I can't. Um, uh, so it's um, that does become, I think, an, you know, the, the sort of the sort of um, heft of the human body that can't be overcome in performance when you have to be a fairy, right? It's very interesting. But the, but the flip side of that, and, and relates to what you're saying about calling to mind or imaginative embodiments, way of thinking about reading the poem. The, the, the mundane question I'm, I'm interested in is, oh, sorry, it's a long preamble. How big do people tend to imagine the, the action of the fairy queen? Yeah. How, how large is the staging? How large are the figures in the home? And that seems like a very mundane question, you know, but, a, but a really rich and interesting one. So thinking about the, the um, scale of that mental performance or imaginative embodiment, that might be an interesting thought to... I'm just going to take one more question. Actually, I'll take to Julian and Julian. I'm going to add to this here that I talked to seminar once where we had an artist, a uh, graduate uh, student, and she asked whether, together with a, another student class, she could present uh, a visual presentation and uh, term paper. And what she did was to draw scale models, taking quite literally some of Spencer's descriptions of the dragon. Um, 
and showing that certain activities attributed to the dragon were physically impossible because it was too big. <laughs> and scaling that alongside Sir George with his toothpick spear, killing a monster this size. The question of size uh, in, in the fairy queen is extremely interesting. Things expand and contract uh, all the time, just sort of adding to it. Thank you. This, this has been a very wonderful day. And I'd like to pay a tribute to the two actors, because I think they really answered the question that we've been asking about the difference between performance and poetry. Because I think you saw how they marry and they're, they're just wonderful. I'd like to just raise two questions. One is the genre issue. Is, is it that different? You know, we've been talking of sensual and somatic and affective and embodied and material. And I would like to think of Renaissance poetry where they blend much more. And, and, and I think, to me, that really is a way. And, and, you know, if you compare Western traditions to Eastern traditions, there's a whole thing of, you know, poetry is always sung and plays are always sung. And the other question is more about the, the panel's topic is that would you think that Spencer has a kind of special ecological imagination? You know, he, I think the first paper addressed that. But was he intuitively thinking of ecology? And I think I'm going to teach the fairy queen after hearing that. So. Short answer is yes. yes. <laughs> uh, mutability in particular, which is a common theme throughout the entire epic, not just in that seventh book. Uh, is, is a proto-ecological concept, and then Shakespeare's uh, Spencer's deriving it from Ovid and in the Metamorphoses and other places. But absolutely. I think maybe actually on that one, we're almost out of time. We're a little bit over time, in fact. So I just want to thank everyone for participating um, in this panel. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Spencer Poetry and Performance, a collaboration between the International Spencer Society and Shakespeare's Globe.